they have these conferences, which I just think is the funniest thing ever. It's like, hey, let's have like all these queer folks in the church not know each other, but then let's put them in a hotel room or like one big hotel for like a weekend and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What do you think is going to happen? It's gay Christian speed dating, right? Like that's exactly what it is. We'll put fish bowls in the hallway that people can put their keys in so they don't get lost. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. stopping by. Uh, this is Growing Up Christian, and we're throwing this intro in as kind of an afterthought. Um, we decided a while ago we were going to start <laughs> recording these, and uh, we never remember when we're actually talking <laughs> to people. So you're getting a double intro, and it's going to sound clunky, but it's it's fine. Uh, first things first, we got to pour one out for two heavy hitters from our childhood. Uh, number one, Musical sensation Carmen, he but passed away this week. I don't know what from. I didn't read into it. Dude, I'll be honest. I didn't really even know who. Um, I don't really know who Carmen is. Oh no! Yeah, Dude, so he was a uh, very strange. <laughs> like I, I had a couple of his albums, I think, but the one that I had that I actually listened to. I mean, and this was like fourth grade. But uh, he had one called Mission 316, and it was like, <laughs> it sounded like James Bond music and stuff. Mission 316. And it was uh, <laughs> just cringy. Uh, it was I'm like, gonna, I got to look up his stuff because I don't be I, I, I'm seeing it rock the world right now uh, within certain circles. Everyone's just like, hey, he's dead. It's like, but I haven't. I got to go back and, and check out some of that stuff and, and join in on the fun here. It's it's like a parody of music. Yeah, <laughs> It's like a Christian parody of music, but he was serious about it. <laughs> and I had no idea. So before he passed away, I had no idea that he had this like backlog of incredible music videos that <laughs> I, I did a little catching up on this week. And uh the mission 316 he has like this whole mini movie where he got to pretend to be in an action movie and pretend to punch people and kick them and stuff and <laughs> at the end it's like he's on this mission to like stick this ring in this little holder thing and it broadcasts a video of a televangelist talking about jesus so he beats the shit out of people on his way to <laughs> the video yeah. of the televangelist that's cool servants of the devil what are you supposed to do? You know, punch him in the face. But uh, the other one that I watched was called an invitation from a witch. And it's, it's magic. You got to watch it. <laughs> it's, it's another like weird little like movie music video thing. Cause he did some like spoken word type stuff too. Oh, it's okay. Not quite. I mean, like I said, he, he was like a parody of music. Like he did some weird like rap songs he what? did like some harder rock song. I mean, it was just awful. The whole thing. Why don't but, I uh, know who this guy is? I don't know. I thought everybody, everybody uh, in that community at least knew who Carmen was. But Ugh. yeah, it was it was bad. It's pretty bad stuff. But in the move in that video about the witch, he's talking about like this guy inviting him to his house, basically to like argue with him about how Satan was powerful or something. 
and it's supposedly based on some sort of true story. Is it based on the devil went down to Georgia? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like that. Only, only not as cool, which is saying something. But uh, he goes into this guy's house and he's trying to describe like his creepy house or whatever. And he's like, he had a Ouija board and Dungeons and Dragons on the table. Which is hilarious. Nice. Why was Dungeons and Dragons regarded as like some oh, sort of awful thing? Let's get into that for a second. I, I remember, so my my family never took a super hard line stance against it. Um, but I remember the conversation about why some people did have a problem with it. And it was because Christians for a little bit had this thing where they really hated like role playing games because, you know, Dungeons and Dragons has magic. You're getting into your role. It's like you're you're opening doors for demons to get in. Essentially was what they were arguing is that like when you all gather around and you play this game together, you pretend to be different people and you try to cast spells. Like they it's like they missed that it was a game and they thought that they were like really trying like it was like a it's like they almost thought it was a séance of some sorts. It was uh, I just remember people like talking about like some people get so hooked on Dungeons and Dragons that if they lose, they kill themselves. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which maybe. I don't know. But I bet I, you somebody's I mean, killed themselves over Monopoly, too. Yeah, I mean, if you're an, an unstable person, I'm sure it's less about the uh, the game you're playing and more about your current mental health situation. But I... I just remember there being an issue with the type of like the just role playing games in general that like diving into and in, in trying to enact because I, I never played Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, my siblings actually all really got into it later on, and like I don't think I have fire, it. In me. Did they? Yeah, yeah. I don't have it in me. I don't think to like get into it. I'm too like self conscious. Uh, so when everyone's sitting at a table pretending to be their characters and like narrating as though their character would say this or that. Like, I don't know. It sounds cool, but I would just be too in my own head about it. Uh, so I, can't, I wouldn't, I can't, I can't get into board games. Like I, a board I, game. I just, Jesus Christ. Do you have, well, well, do you know how okay. many Dungeons and Dragons right, people games, are going to be mad games. at you? Right, right. Like non video based games. You I have just a hard open time Pandora's with box. <laughs> And Don't it's, cancel us. It's definitely not Jones, anything wrong with the game. It's what's wrong with me. Like I, I just my attention no span for that type of stuff. Yeah, that might be it. Like uh, <laughs> my friends really like playing Magic: The Gathering. Oh yeah. And so I went and bought some cards with them, and they were going to kind of teach me how. And like, you know, two hours into the explanation of how to play, I was kind of like, I, I, guys, I think I'm too dumb for this. <laughs> like, I can't do. It. There's like. There's like too much math involved, too many uh cancel this cancels out that, that boosts this. But like Dungeons and Dragons is bigger than it's ever been right now, I think, because yeah. there's like whole shows of just people playing Dungeons and Dragons like for an audience. Like uh April loves this one called uh Critical Role. Okay. And I've I've watched like pieces of it, but I jumped in in the middle, so I have no clue what's going on. But her and her friends love it and she's like made costumes from it and stuff so i, I, I think it's like really big right now it's resurgence had a lot to do with stranger things oh yeah because they play that uh 
the the Borg or whatever. Yeah, like the I mean, that's what they play in the play. game, and it kind of like made it like a household name. I mean, families watched Stranger Things, so it kind of just brought it back into the zeitgeist, really. Like, popular. That's, that Critical Role deal is like a bunch of voice actors. So they're all really good at playing the parts and stuff like that. But it's huge. Like they're like inviting them to events and there's lines of people out the door to meet them and stuff. Wow. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> what would it be like to be likable? I don't know. <laughs> this is our desperate attempt for it, I guess. Is um, All right. Wait, who is the other person? I'm changing the subject. Who is the other person we get a poor one out for? Oh, you said two. Uh, Rush Limbaugh. Oh, right. Okay. Did you listen to Rush with your dad? Oh, yeah, yeah. I listened to Rush a lot. Yeah. Like when I was a kid, it was kind of on some of the times. And then I listened to a ton of talk radio. Like when I first moved back to Michigan and was working and stuff, I listened to Rush. Uh, Glenn Beck, I listened to a lot. Michael Savage. Um, can't wait till you have to pour one out for Glenn Beck. Just <laughs> <laughs> He's got a while yet. He's doing all right. <laughs> Sean Hannity was the worst. Oh my God. Like even when I was still like into all that stuff and I was still pretty, uh, hardline Republican about things. I was always like, man, this guy is a charlatan. He's a whiny bitch too. Like it's just get over some of the stuff. He, he has, dude, you know, who's really like, moved in like in on his uh territory is uh tucker carlson that guy is yeah. a fucking nightmare to listen to yeah he's got some i don't know i've watched clips of him i've never watched his show like like legitimately but he's got some clips where he says some really weird stuff like there was one where he was commenting on warren jeffs and the lds church and like he said some stuff about the stuff that warren jeffs had done and kind of downplayed it as if it wasn't that big of a deal and i th he might have been being facetious you know so i i don't know that you can you know context but it was weird yeah like I, that guy's a rapist and a psychopath he'll he downplay anyone who's done something bad that's like that he just down he'll always downplay things if it fits like his um his quote unquote agenda. I know that the only people with agendas are liberals and gays, but uh, he is like, when, I mean, after like, I think it had to do with, I watched a video of his recently and he was all about like, he had all these problems with people calling white supremacists, white supremacists essentially it was like he was trying to downplay some of the issues that happened at the insurrection just like that, the way he goes about it and the way that he talks to his audience he talks to them like they're all dumb he's like and then something something's gonna happen and then what are we supposed to do are we really supposed to believe that and like the dude, like the way you talk to people is like he it's like do you think everyone you're talking to is an idiot if I was listening to that, I'm like, I feel patronized right now. It's weird. Yeah. Well, I think there's definitely an element of that. Like, it's calculated. They don't just let these guys go on the air and ramble. Oh, no. no. Like, it's it's a calculated effort. People don't like to hear that, that are into it, but it, it's scripted to some extent. It's not all at the whims of Tucker, what Tucker talks about, you know? 
Whereas like somebody like Rush Limbaugh, I think it is kind of, I mean, it's, it's a one man show. He does what he wants. Right. I always felt like I, now I haven't listened to Rush Limbaugh in a long time, but I didn't really ever get the same sort of like, uh, religious zealot vibes from him that I did from like Glenn Beck. Yeah. Like, okay. Glenn Beck really like used people's emotions to push them in certain directions and stuff, you know, buy this book. It's so important for your family for Christmas this year, blah, blah, blah. Rush seemed like he was more of a, like he joked around a lot. Uh, I don't know. I think he was like, I think he plays a character or played, played a character to some extent. I don't doubt that he had a lot of those viewpoints, but I think like what he did on the air was like, it was an exaggerated version of those things because it, it worked. Yeah. You pretty much have to like hand that guy talk radio. I mean, you know, there probably wouldn't be much for talk radio if it weren't for that dude. Yeah. uh, That's probably, I mean, it's got, well, very like conservative talk radio, maybe. Um, I, which is its own thing. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Appreciate your uh, legacy there. Rush. Um, (laughs) My yeah, parents, I don't man. know how much of it was a character. I I think he was just into his own self and he would like start going off on things and just keep going and going. And then occasionally he'd be like, oh, I'll backpedal on that because I think I might have said too much and offer like some weak ass half hearted apology. Uh, but I mean, fact is the apologies don't really, I, what pisses me off about people like him is that the apologies don't go nearly as far as the original statement when you're riling up your kind of base there. So like when you make comments about, I mean, he made some pretty, of course now like with him dying, what you're seeing is like the circulation of a lot of his quotes. Right. And I mean, he had some really like pretty wild quotes out there. Um, I, I heard of a few that I had not heard before. Yeah, that I, was I mean, like, a couple here are, if any race of people should not have guilt about slavery, it's Caucasians. <laughs> so there's one. What about <laughs> feminism was established so as to allow unattractive women easier access to the mainstream of society. Yeah. Feminazis. That was his favorite, favorite little uh, label. Oh, here's a good one. Holocaust, 90 million Indians, only 4 million left. They all have casinos. What's to complain about? Whew. So, yeah, I don't know. One. Like, even if you make comments and then you're, oh, here's, oh, blacks are 12% of the population. Who the hell cares? Oh, jeez. Yeah, well, you know, he had a, he had a pretty, pretty rough one at one point because, the company that I work for ran ads with him and it was, you know, when you're a company with that only has, that's only going to do like one medium of advertisement and your whole goal is just to like get the word out, you know, something like that. I think, you know, 20 years ago you could make a case for something like that, but they had to drop him because he was talking about birth control or something, and he called the this lady that was talking about birth control. He called her a slut. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, that was like one of those later controversies. But yeah, they had to drop their advertising campaign with him. They're like, uh, you know, I think we're out. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He had a tendency to run his mouth for sure. I can't, it's just, yeah, I don't know. I, I, the guy, I, I listened to him a good bit when I was a kid. Um, yeah, just, you know, with my, in my dad's car or whatever, like every conservative Christian family had him on. Um, and I don't know how few and far between his extreme statements were, but I, as with everybody else in the past, like six, seven years, it feels like everyone just drifted more into uh, these extremist ideologies where they would just lash. It was like, everyone felt like they were lashing out all the time. And, um, I get the feeling that he was in a similar camp as we keep seeing with these types of people. Um, your Glenn Beck's, your Dave Ramsey's, your anyone who is like kind of an even who's put up on the evangelicals pedestal for conservatism, uh, especially if they're po- like politics first type of characters. Um, their, their, their main recognition is for being, like they're a political figure uh in talking about politics and then they kind of like tack on their evangelicalism um that kind of just allows them to continue uh, saying whatever they want but continually get offered up forgiveness for every time they have a shortcoming because you know the forgiveness card's yeah. big when it's someone from their in group but forgiveness for somebody on the outside of that is you're not going to see it on a, on a public platform by any means. Well, gone now. I think, uh, there's a lot of people that are pretty broken up about it. If, uh, you know, three hours of your day were spent with Rush Limbaugh every day and you feel a little lost right now, message us and we'll throw you some podcast suggestions. Uh, we can give you some fun ones. We can give you some political ones, whatever you want. We will fill the podcast void for you, <laughs> and it won't just be with our backlog of 13 episodes or whatever. You can listen to those and repeat. Speaking of which, uh, we wanted to give a quick shout out to the homies on our Discord, which you can find the link to the Discord um, on any of our social media, basically. So take a look at that. Jump in if you can. Uh, our our Heavy hitters in Discord this week were Jeremiah, old pal from the Liberty Days. Thanks, Jeremiah. Uh, Motark, weighing in on a lot of things. Appreciate your feedback. Laptop Monkey. And, of course, April Gloria, my my, uh, sweetheart. Shouts out to my wife. She's great. (laughs) (laughs) This feels like nepotism. I'm not okay with this. Michael M., Thanks for uh, thanks for posting, everybody. It's good to get to know you guys a little better, and uh, I think we're gonna do some cool things with the Discord as we go forward. Might do like some movie watch parties, uh, yeah. throw some questions your guys' way. We'd like to kind of get some feedback from you guys on some of the things that we talk about, and, and I'm I, I'm sure every single one of you is sitting on some really great stories that we want to hear. So. <laughs> Jump in there, man. Join the Discord and hang out with us. And uh, if nothing else, we'll we'll throw some crappy music your way. Yeah, do it before it uh, it blows up too much and we have to kill the link. So be an early adopter and, and hang out with us. <laughs> so uh, this week we had a, a really good episode. Uh, w- this one was a ton of fun. We talked to Luke Wilson, 
who's what's what's Luke's background? So not the actor. Uh, this is officially his name is Lucas Wilson. Um, but Luke is a um, well, he's he's currently uh, obtaining his PhD. Uh, he's got a pretty heavy academic background, um, and he's a journalist. He he's written a lot of articles related to gay conversion therapy uh, as a gay man who went through it for four years at Liberty University. Um, he's been pretty heavily critical of some of the just things that have gone on at LU in general, but in large part, the focus of the conversation is on, uh, is on gay conversion therapy and its effects on, on young, specifically young men. Um, actually thinking about it now on the fly, I only know of men for the most part who have gone through gay conversion therapy. It was a much it seems so much more male centric, like every other part of evangelicalism. But I, this kind of gets my brain running on whether or not this is um, something that a lot of women have dealt with, too. Uh, it seems like I almost exclusively understand it as something that mostly men have gone through. I didn't think about that, but that's true. I haven't heard of any women that went through it. And there's got to be. I mean, there's. I'm sure there's yeah. there's women that had that experience. If you are a woman that went through conversion therapy, uh, give us a shout. We'd like to hear from yeah. you. Yeah, definitely. Luke's written some good articles, though, on the subject. Uh, he's got a great perspective on it, and he's just a, a fun guy to talk to. Uh, we had a blast, like, joking around with him and stuff. And even though we touched on conversion therapy with, with uh, Matt a couple episodes ago, this episode, we we kind of focus on conversion therapy, and Luke goes on to, into some detail about like his relationship with uh, the director of this program, and it's just weird, man. The more we hear about this, the more it's you know it's icky, regardless. But like, there's just you can't help but think that there might be some weird. Uh, sexual manipulation and and I'm not, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say here. There's yeah, some I'm, I'm questioning like, motives yeah, from yeah. some of the people. It, it, the, the heavy investment that some and the how quote unquote passionate some of these people are about helping these people feels a little icky um, and, and questionable. Like what it, I don't know. I partly I think you know over the years we've seen plenty of plenty of abuse come out of positions of power within church settings, especially the more unchecked those types of people are like, I don't know, uh, not necessarily like sexual or anything, but like just a lot of emotional abuse as well. And it's like a power. There's a lot of like power tripping of like, I can fix you. I can make you better. Uh, I can save you. I'm right. I'm so convinced that I'm right that like, it's, you know, I need to get everybody else on board with this. I, it's just been so prevalent. Um, I mean, I don't know what this, it's hard to name statistics, but as someone who follows what's going on, it feels like, I mean, multiple times a year you have evangelical leaders, um, who are accused of some sort of misconduct, uh, albeit maybe it's sexual misconduct or sometimes it's like, it's just more emotional abuse. Sometimes it's, I don't know. It, it, but 
Well, I th- unchecked authority Casey, I think with no that. oversight is always a bad combination. Uh, always it, it outside calls of Christianity, of course. I think the problem yeah. is Christian culture has this uh, has a trust of pastoral authority uh, that they would they, they give them more trust than they would anybody else um, and less oversight because of that trust and um, of course we just continue to see the ramifications of that um, uh, Luke has a brand new article out um, and we're gonna post it in our show notes um, it, but it's Liberty it has to do with you know as we'll get into it in the episode um, the man who ran the gay conversion therapy program at Liberty University retired and when their big write-up about his legacy and, and involvement in the university came out there wasn't one mention of of his gay conversion therapy program which was i mean one of the things he was best known for there um and, and a lot of that obviously has to do with the legality around those types of programs and and how frowned upon they are in in culture. So drawing attention to that draws it even more attention to a school and some of their questionable activities than that university really needs at this time. I think that, I think the tide is turning on this issue. Thank God. And, uh, you don't believe and really, God. you can't thank him. <laughs> thank on, the dark Jason. Lord. Hail <laughs> Sithis. Uh, <laughs> I think that uh, if if it weren't for for Luke and some of his cohorts, this is an issue that I knew very little about. You know, before we, st- I mean, really before we started this show, and now that we've talked to several people who have been through it, um, I just have such a better understanding of like how despicable some of this stuff is, and and why it absolutely has to end. And again, I, I mean, I I think you can attribute the the level of public understanding that this has right now and the push towards its demise, you can attribute that directly to people like Lucas and and some of the things that he's done. So you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation. I know we did. And uh, yeah, Uh, keep an eye out for more work from Lucas. I think he's going to do some, he's going to do some big things. So it's going to be a, it's going to be fun to follow his work. Follow him on Um, Twitter. Um, we'll post his Twitter and stuff in the show notes. He just, he's got some good stuff. And as he continues to write, he'll share it. Uh, I think there's a lot to learn from him. Uh, so, so really pay attention to those types of voices. All right, guys, without further ado, we give you Luke Wilson. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of growing up Christian. Uh, today we have with us a, very fun and interesting guest, uh, Lucas Wilson. He's a fellow Liberty alumni. Uh, he goes MA in English from McMaster University, uh, as well as an MTS, which is, what is that, Luke? What's MTS? A Master's of Theological Studies. Well, great, because yeah. you're educated and we're, uh, we stopped at undergrads, so we're uh, <laughs> <laughs> a little rough on the acronyms. So he got his MTS from Vanderbilt, and he, where he graduated first in his class, and he's a PhD candidate in comparative studies at Florida Atlantic University. Uh, he's had articles, publications in uh, Queer T, RVA Magazine, and LGBTQ Nation. Yes, sir. And uh, we're very excited to have you with us, Lucas. How you doing, man? 
Oh, pretty well, pretty well. Very excited to be here as well. So, Lucas, you are a native-born Canadian, is that correct? Guilty as charged. Uh, born and raised in Toronto. I then moved uh, after uh, high school. I moved down to Virginia for my undergrad. And then I lived, I came back to Canada for a year for my MA. And then I went back to the States for a few degrees. And then halfway through my PhD, I was uh, living in Florida. And I, I thought to myself, what is life? I'm living in Florida at the age of 28 <laughs> as a gay man. What is this? I need to get out. And so I fast-tracked my PhD and hightailed it back to Toronto, uh, where I've been uh, hanging out uh, in isolation for the past few months. Like us uh, Americans, Canadians, world participants. Not yeah, K- yeah, not in Kansas. Casey, you guys don't believe in COVID over there. We're starting to wear masks. <laughs> it's like just as the vaccine rolls out, you're starting to throw them on. It's a little uh, more on the late side. Right. No one puts it over their nose, though. You oh, know. my God. Like to have an open sneeze passage. <laughs> that's, that's against their rights, I heard, you know, to tell them to cover their nose with a mask. It is. They yeah, have a lot of rights. It's caused some stir. <laughs> that's what I learned in America, <laughs> that you really need to emphasize your rights and just sue people. Those are the two things I learned in America. <laughs> uh, while Lucas graduated from Liberty uh, and we attended the school around the same time, uh, we didn't actually know each other. I mean, we still really don't. We I've recently kind of gotten connected with him because I was interested in some of the work that he's done in regards to some of his experiences at Liberty, uh, talking a lot about his experiences as a gay man who has come up through the ranks of evangelicalism and the evangelicalism, evangelicalism's particular love of, uh, is it either gay? I, I always heard it gay conversion therapy, but now I'm hearing reparative therapy. I mean, take, you can call it whatever you want. I ultimately, and, and here's the thing, I think that a lot of people, um, they don't even call it conversion therapy or reparative therapy. They just call it, you know, like biblical or pastoral counseling, <laughs> whatever <laughs> you call it. It's all the same thing, you know? Um, and I think that it's change therapy, reparative therapy, conversion therapy, um, a lot of different names, but ultimately same thing. You're trying to change someone's gender expression and or sexuality. I kind of want to get the snapshot of what your life was like as an adolescent, like kind of get the idea of when you, when you started coming to the realization that you were gay and what that was like as an evangelical. So you, did you, was Christianity something that you really like grew up in? Was it something that was part of your family and you kind of just came up through the church? What was your, um, what was your childhood like in regards to, in, in regards to, to Jesus? That? Yeah. Um, no, I, uh, so I, how do you say? I mean, when we were little, my family, I'm the youngest of five and okay. my, f- all of my siblings went to church much longer than I did. Um, because, uh, by the time I was in like, maybe like grade two or three, we stopped going to church. We were like every good Canadian family went to the cottage instead. But hey. you know, like before that we would go to church, uh, on Sundays though, I would hazard to say that we were ever an evangelical family because we absolutely were not. Not only was my dad not religious, um, he was an uh, agnostic. Uh, But on top of that, like even with my mom who identifies as a Christian, you ask her pretty much anything about the Bible. You ask her anything about her faith and she's just like, I don't know. Like it just Jesus. And you're like, that doesn't sound all that thought out. Um, but she, she's not someone who, other than teaching me my prayers and all of my siblings and and me, our prayers, when we were little, we never talked about God. It was like, 
you go to church and then you come home and you shut the hell up about it, <laughs> you know? Um, so was it like family tradition or was it just like one of those, you know, it's good for your kids to put them in church sort of things? Yeah. You know, like my mom, my mom's haunted by like a lot of Baptist demons that she grew up with because she grew up in a Baptist home. My dad, I believe my dad, when he was a kid, went to a Presbyterian church, though, again, like that, that side of my family, my dad's side of the family, like not religious at all. Um, but my mom's side, her, like her siblings, two of her brothers uh, are not religious. My aunt Maureen is religious. And then my mom, again, claims to be religious. I don't know, again, I don't really know the specifics, but uh, again, I don't know when the last time she went to church or read her Bible or anything along those lines. I don't actually don't really speak with my mom uh, anymore. But um, with growing up with her, like it wasn't, it just wasn't something um, that we talked about. It was just, I think that for her, like you're saying, you know, she, she was working out her past by putting us through church. But again, we stopped going after a long time. And I didn't, I didn't actually go. Uh, so that was yeah, around grade two or three is when we stopped. But I went back to church when I was in, in high school, actually. Grade nine, I became an evangelical. Um, and so very it was in large part through the church that I went back to, it was the church that we went to when we were little. Um, but it was actually initially through the converse, like the reason why I came to faith was, uh, the conversation of creation versus evolution. <laughs> I thought, I thought like, Oh, I need to like learn more about this. My brother got really into it one summer. And so, uh, because of that, I then started going back to church, but it was really my brother who got me into, uh, who was it? Um, Kent Ken Hovind. Ham? Whoa, no, uh-huh. not Ken Ham. Ken Ham's in Kentucky. Ken Hovind was in Pensacola, Florida. Um, and he used to have these debates with, with, you know, with academics or, um, uh, you know, evolutionists, or is that what he, what he what's the term? Evolutionists? Is uh, that the term? I think we call them regular scientists. People. <laughs> I think we call them rational folks. Just regulars. Those are hu- yeah. regular humans. <laughs> well, there's like, cre- yeah, creationists and evolution. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. I know, evolutionist sounds weird because we've just called it science for so long now. <laughs> yeah, I'm still getting used to it. Um, <laughs> and so, no, he, and so, uh, Kent Hove, or, yeah, Kent Hoven, um, had these DVDs that he, my brother bought and then he was, and so my brother was like, Luke, you got to watch these DVDs with me about, you know, creation versus evolution. And I was like, no, nah, like that doesn't sound like the most fun. I'm okay. And <laughs> after a while he was like, you know, he kept bugging me and I was like, fine, I'll watch it. So I started watching them uh, with him. And at the time I was, you know, just fascinated. I thought to myself, well, gosh, like the evidence is so clear, like God must have created the world. And so I started, you know, doing a little bit of internet uh, exploring and whatnot, trying to find out the truth and getting to the bottom of it. But by the end of my time sort of thinking through creation versus evolution, I was different from my brother where he believed that there was a, you know, a creator. And for me, I also believe there was a creator, but I wanted to know who this creator was. And so I thought to myself, well, of course the answer is the church that I went to, <laughs> you know, growing up. So I can wow. go back there. And so I just, kept going to church and didn't really stop. And then, uh, was involved in, in, in evangelicalism in the evangelical church for, I don't know, about 10 plus years, just about 10 years. Wow. So you, okay. So you, that was, you said ninth grade. Yeah. Great. Yeah. In Canada, we say grade nine, but you're great ninth grade. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I know of, that thanks to trailer park boys. <laughs> yeah. There's so many educational possibilities. Um, but no, I, I, with that show, but no, I, I went from grade nine all the way through grade 12 and then undergrad and then into my, into my, into Vanderbilt, I was still going to church. Um, those not nearly as much as I was when I was at McMaster. Um, and by the end of it, I just kind of gave up on it once I started my PhD. Huh? So, okay. So you 
getting back into the church in high school, um, I mean, I remember what I was like in high school as a ninth grader, which was mostly horny and thinking about <laughs> girls. So like, obviously you had started to understand or reconcile or whatever that, that you were gay. So like, that was an, that's a weird time to get in back to get back into church. Um, what was that like? What, I mean, I don't know if that was considered like, I, I know what it's like being an evangelical here in America. And I don't know if there's some similarities when it comes to their feelings towards homosexuality, as they like to say. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, let me know what you were thinking on that one. <laughs> I, w- I wasn't thinking. That's the long and the short of it. Um, no, I think, I mean, when I went to, uh, when I was in grade nine, at that point, I mean, I knew I was gay since I was little. Like, my parents put me in dance lessons and figure skating lessons. The writing was on the wall. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> my son wants to do dance lessons. Hey, and I encourage it because there's, I, honestly, that's one thing I miss the most is dancing. Um, but you know, when you have a, a little kid, like I was a little artsy guy and I, I loved all things arts. I, I, I was into visual. I went to like, again, I went to arts, uh, high school and my main art was actually visual art, but I did dance. I did theater. Um, and I, I mean, yeah, I, I think everyone should be doing dance. I think that, um, a lot of people would benefit. I've seen, um, some people's dance skills on the, on the dance floor. And again, I do think that there's there's uh, room for improvement. I've seen a lot of dance skills on TikTok over the past couple of years, and I would agree completely. Isn't it? When, <laughs> quick side note: like watching folks on TikTok dance when they they have like I'm not saying I have training. Like I guess I went to art school, but I wouldn't even say like oh I have training. But I mean like seeing people like dance on TikTok. I mean I just kind of want them to take a seat a little bit. Is that is that not fair in saying? I, I feel like those TikTok dances are more like the the hand motions they would teach us to like for Sunday school songs than they are dances. Like it's a lot of white girls just sort of like moving yeah. their elbows. Yeah. yeah. If that constitutes dance, then I mean, I'm a professional, you know, um, just wild. No, I, so I was, so yeah, so I knew I was gay. However, I mean, here's the thing with, uh, with a lot of, I mean, both young people and evangelicals who are, uh, pardon me, both young people in general, I think mm-hmm. a lot of us, when we are gay, we try to convince ourselves that we are straight. And, okay. you know, even, I, I you know, I, I think in Canada, like Canada is in some ways different from the States. There are certain things that are different qualitatively for sure, but there are also things that I think are quite similar. And, you know, no matter where you are in the world, you're going to find homophobes, you're going to find bigots. And so growing up, I mean, being gay wasn't cool by any means. It was the nineties. And I mean, <laughs> you know, like that <laughs> surprise, yeah, newsflash. Right. But it, it's like, I, and, and, but I think when you compound that with, with religion, that's when it gets even murkier. And I, and I don't mean ever to say like, it's, you know, again, like the, the, the straight world or pardon me, like the, the, the workaday world is, uh, is, is infinitely better than the church. I'm I, in some ways. Yes. In some ways, no. And I think that that's just like any place, any context, it's going to be, you know, some similarities, some differences. But I do think that in evangelical circles, um, certain uh, responses are amplified, and on top of that, normalized. I think that perhaps in in the in the you know broader culture, uh, a lot of people are homophobic. But it's also, especially now, not considered okay, and it's something that a lot of people would uh, would push against or at least speak up against. Whereas in evangelical spaces, to be homophobic 
um, is the norm. And to be against gay people and to say, like, I have my beliefs about homosexuality and you can have yours. It's like, no, no, this isn't a belief. Yeah. This is like who I am. It's like saying, you know, well, you're a woman. I don't really agree with you because you're a woman in general. Right. But I love you as a person. The, the person would say, like, so you don't love me because I'm, I'm what you call a woman, right? Like, it's the same with being gay. You can't separate one's sexuality from one's personhood. That's a constitutive part of what makes that person that person. And so I think growing up, I had, because of my mom specifically, my dad was a, a, a wonderful, peaceful, loving hippie. Um, and he, I actually have his, his leather coats in my, in my closet right now. Um, because he stopped wearing them when he became a vegetarian. <laughs> so I have to now. Um, and so like, he was just wonderful. Right. And then there's Cheryl, my mom, um, who, I, again, the reason why we don't speak is actually because she's a homophobe and I, you know, for the longest time had no connection to the church. Uh, but the moment that I came out, all of a sudden she was spewing a lot of religious diction. And I was like, wait a second, where's this coming from? And of course, you know, it comes from her background. It comes from her fear of probably seeing the eighties AIDS epidemic and thinking that I'm going to die because I'm going to somehow get AIDS because she believes that queers are just, you know, sex driven. And so there are a lot of reasons why I think she responded the way she did. But at this point we just don't speak. Um, and I think though, when I was younger, uh, and when I was, you know, in grade nine and, and trying to, to, to think about, um, you know, who was Luke and, you know, of course that's the time that you're starting to begin to explore that. Um, I think I was so scared and I was so, um, I did, I didn't want to be gay because again, I had been told my whole life that to be gay is to be weird, to be gay is to be, you know, effeminate. And I mean, I guess I was kind of effeminate when I was a kid in some ways, but at the same time, like I, 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 I don't know, maybe, maybe I was, maybe I, I don't know. I, I think that ultimately people knew that I was different <laughs> and whether or not yeah. they would identify it as me being gay or they thought I was just something was like a little bit off. I don't know. Um, but I definitely felt from a lot of people that they knew. Um, and I think that hmm. Christianity offered me, um, at the time, what I wanted was, was, um, cover from that. Now I'm like, I am who I am and I'm, I'm thoroughly and delightedly gay. But at the time I certainly wasn't. And I think that Christianity gave me a cover and it gave me, um, an ability to, to think about myself, not as a, a gay person, but as someone, the way that Christians love to frame it is, uh, a person struggling with same-sex attraction or a straight person they say like you're a heterosexual but you're struggling with same-sex attraction you're like so you mean gay they're like no 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 it's <laughs> it's different um and so for me i think the reason why i was so drawn to christianity was because of the safety because of the familiarity uh in the sense that again like when i was little i i knew my prayers and that was comforting i suppose and familiar um whereas as time went on i i kept you know bumping up against my my sexuality because you know in, in christianity specifically in evangelicalism you know it's an either or paradigm it's right wrong good evil of god of the enemy and my sexuality put a wedge in that binary and it didn't allow me to operate in this you know uh black and white cosmology i had to uh begin to think about how i didn't fit that therefore you know is it you know i had, I had to reconsider my faith and and ultimately that wasn't even my faith it wasn't even my sexuality that that uh, separated me from my faith it was actually my studies, but <laughs> God damn the academics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you learn a couple of things and all of a sudden you have second thoughts after 20 something years in it. It's really inter interesting. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's funny too. You have so many, um, you know, Christian families or Christian parents who are so terrified of their kids going to a secular college and learning. Um, it's like learning, learning shouldn't be scary. Like learning shouldn't be something that is so 
um, you know, uh, it's, it's not a big, bad monster to learn. And, and I think if you are understanding learning or education like that, then like your faith doesn't seem to really be anything worth keeping because if it's knocked down so easily by a little bit of learning and reading a few books, I think your faith isn't worth it. And I, and I, and I'm so, um, every time I hear people who talk about like the evils of secular education, it's like, again, if what's, if you, if, if you have new ideas presented to you and, and again, your faith doesn't stand, then again, that's not a faith worth claiming. Yeah. It's so funny because I, I mean, in high school, I remember one book that, I mean, I did a lot of things in high school that were all about reinforcing the biblical worldview. And mm-hmm. one of the ones in particular that I remember, one of the books in particular I remember reading outside of, you know, just about every other aspect of my life that tried to reinforce that type of belief was um, there's this book called like, Don't Check Your Brain at the Door. And it was <laughs> it was all about like thinking critically about things. Um, and essentially, the it was just a it was your par for the course Christian apologetics book. There was a lot of like reinforcing the idea that like, don't trust your own reasoning. Yeah. Like your reasoning is faulty. You're a fallen creature cling to the word of God. And that's the only real truth out there. If anything contradicts what we know to be the truth, because we all, we all agree, right? We all agree <laughs> that this is the truth. Then it's to be dismissed. You know, it's almost like it painted a, you know, a deeper understanding and learning and studying some of those topics. It's, it's like you are going to be seduced away from the truth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what does Augustine say? He says, all truth is God's truth. And if that's true, or if that's accurate, then I think then, you know, learning shouldn't be scary. Learning should be something that ultimately allows people to understand God more fully. However, that's not how it's framed in a lot of circles. Well, ironically, we like, I, I'll never forget the the pushback against postmodernist concepts uh, as a high schooler. And it's like the dangers of postmodernism. Like how dare you assume that there is no, because even thinking all truth is God's truth. It's like, yeah, but truth as understood by people who are just catching glimpses of it. Right. So like, it, it is funny when you think about, the people who get to disseminate truth amongst us. Um, so when you think of like the pastors, the teachers that, that you have in your Christian circles and it's like, they're giving you a particular version of it. Uh, typically anything else that opposes it is, is straw manned in some way. But I, I think it's just, I find it weird and maybe it was always like this. Um, but getting to the point that we're at now where there's, I mean, it's undeniable that in the at least in the past decade, like there's been some notable shifts in evangelicalism. If not, it, it was kind of on that trajectory. And of course, you can look to the 70s and and the moral majority and and the founding of the religious right that that was really the the catalyst for all of this. But when you look at their pushback against postmodernism, is like there there is an absolute truth and and we can find it. Um, but then when people really go out searching for truth and, and you would think of things in terms of all truth is God's truth, it's like, well, now everyone's just defining everyone who taught us against the dangers of postmodernism have just been kind of defining truth as whatever they want to believe. It feels like, and of course their retort is, well, I believe this and you believe that kind of similarly to what you were talking about when it comes to how they approach how, I mean, really just a lot of things, but how they approach the conversation around whether or not it's okay to be gay. And it's like, oh, well, I just disagree with 
X, Y, and Z and, and you don't, but we can still be cool. And it's like, we're all, we're at this point now where it's like interesting that everyone just is, there's this crafting of our, of the narratives where when you even try to broach these subjects, it's, it just kind of gets boiled down to, well, this is just how I understand it to be. This is my truth. This is what I think God's truth is. And, and it, it's ultimately just postmodernism, but they won't call it that because that's dangerous and evil. Well, it's crazy. It's crazy how evangelicals have finessed for themselves a position that their interpretation of scripture is just God's truth or God's yeah. word, as they like to put it, versus everyone else's opinion is an opinion. Right. right. Like the, theirs is absolute. Right. Theirs is, you know, unquestionable. Whereas everyone and they're like, it's not my opinion. This is just what God says. And it's like, no, 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 my friends. This is not simply what God says. This is what you're saying. God says, and they'll say, but the Bible says this. And it's like, <laughs> precisely the Bible says this or the Bible, pardon me. I mean, what does that even mean? Right. The Bible says this. You're reading the Bible and interpreting what the Bible says to be what you say is or are, pardon me, God's words. And right. that, again, I, I, it's so curious how they're able to, and maybe not curious, maybe there are a number of reasons um, why they're able to <laughs> understand their interpretation as a non-interpretation, but instead as an absolute capital T truth. Yeah. It's, we, we read that section out of, uh, out of my old textbook, Sam. It's like this to a T, and it happens in a matter of three paragraphs. <laughs> you know, the shift between... Well, you know, uh, church leaders back then were wrong. And so they killed these scientists. You know, that wasn't good of them. Now we know for sure that the scientists are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> How long did you uh, did you stick to evangelicalism? Yeah, so I so grade nine is when things began. And then uh, I was at so when I graduated from Liberty, I went to McMaster and I was actually I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself a youth pastor because that's not what I was. I was just a youth leader, but I'm the one, I was the one who led youth group and led the Bible study with, with another guy, but, um, by and large, it was me leading it. And so when I went to McMaster, I was living in Hamilton, Ontario. Um, it's like an hour away from Toronto and I was there and I was, you know, uh, still heavily involved in the church. And it was, it was at McMaster that things started to come to a a boiling point because I did go through four years of conversion therapy and it again, obviously didn't work. Here I am. Big old fear. <laughs> and, and that I was all four time, years at Liberty. All four years at Liberty. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, I remember even, I, I reached out to a pastor in Toronto who I didn't really know if he was affirming of homosexuality or not, but I reached out to him in this one of this kind of like last ditch effort to say like, Hey, I'm sick and tired of having to like, think about myself in really horrible terms. Um, and also, you know, to try so hard because it's not that us queers who went through conversion therapy didn't try. I mean, like we gave it that good old college try and <laughs> it obviously didn't work, but you know, it was mm. like this, it was this cruel optimism, um, that, that I had that, that queers have who are going through conversion therapy, that they're optimistic that one day, they're going to find this object of happiness, of happiness, this like key to happiness, which is heteronormativity, which is living a life of, you know, quote unquote, godly normalcy. And that, of course, that promise of, uh, of, of becoming straight or that potential of becoming straight is of course precluded from its very, you know, inception. Like I'm not ever going to be able to become straight, but 
I've been told that I can. And so when you have this object of happiness that you're searching after, chasing after, and again, it's impossible, you're, you're never going to achieve it. And you don't yet know that it's incredibly <laughs> frustrating, right? Like where you're constantly living towards an ideal that's never realizable, that that's such cruel, cruel, um, again, uh, way of being, it's a cruel way of like, or pardon me, it's a cruel way of, of, uh, how do you say, of promising someone something, right? Like that this is not going to yeah. happen. So when I got to McMaster, I remember one night uh, before, this is, I think, before I reached out to the pastor in Toronto, who I never actually even met up with. I was too scared uh, in some ways. But at the others, on the other side of things, I was at McMaster and I was going to visit a buddy at the pub. Um, but just beforehand, I was just, I was in my half basement, half above ground apartment. Um, <laughs> and I remember standing over the sink, just sobbing, being like, God, why the hell can I not just be straight? I have tried and I've tried and I've tried and it hasn't worked. What's going on? It's not a matter of a lack of effort. It's not a matter of a lack of prayer. It's not a matter of a lack of theology, according to evangelicals, you know, but Mm -hmm. what is going on? Why can't I do this? What, like, you know, what do you want from me in order for me to become straight? And of course there were no answers and God didn't respond. He didn't speak audibly to you? Yeah. Still waiting on that phone call. Um, But (laughs) it was just, it was just, you know, what what a torturous time. Um, and I think that Liberty, you know, my time at Liberty was bad for a number of reasons, but I think it was, it was that separation from the Christian community where like my day in and day out wasn't constantly, uh, Christian, like around being around Christian people and, and having that separation and, and having that, you know, just kind of being put back into the real world where you don't have this framework that allows you to live in such delusion, right? I, I, I do believe that I was living in a lot of delusion. Again, the delusion that I could change the delusion that, um, you know, there's a God who, uh, listens to me and talks to me and does things on my behalf. I think those are, uh, from where I stand now, uh, in a lot of ways, delusions. Um, and for me, I didn't have that safety net or that that structure that Liberty offered. And so when I was at Mac, I just felt so unmoored. And again, it's it's where I was all of a sudden by myself, no longer with like you know other people who were quote unquote keeping me accountable, um, which of course is its own you know. You didn't have any more accountability partners. <laughs> oh, don't you just hate that term? Now, like whenever you hear it, you're, you're ever just like I cringe uh, times 20. No but more no. prayer leaders. Oh, yeah. And I was a prayer leader once upon a time, not to brag or anything. <laughs> Me um, too. Fellow yeah, in good too. company. What yeah. about you, Casey? Were you, were you on leadership? At was I was supposed to be, but then I moved off campus last second. They uh, asked you, Casey. You never struck me as the kind of guy that. I, I asked Brenton <laughs> if I could. I think that was part of me working out my self-loathing. Yeah. But then, uh, you know, all my friends left except for you. So I was like, ah, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind. You just didn't want to do you. It was the easiest way to get in your like 20 service, 20 hours of Christian service a semester. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, any type of shortcut. That's, that's my nature. (laughs) Luke, I honestly, I, Listening to what you're saying about four years of gay conversion therapy, I imagine that you had to have like regularly been, and of course, just tell me if I'm an idiot for being, and I'm just wrong, but I I feel like thinking about that and what that would be like, you would just be walking around campus constantly hoping that you would like find a, a girl sexually attractive. You must've been just been like, Ah, oh, please just work, work. Like, <laughs> yeah. what's wrong with me? Yeah, no, that was the thing. It was like, 
there were so many things that, and, and, and in fact, like what I hope to do in the future is do a, an academic study on evangelicalism and use liberty in some ways as a case study to talk mm. about, um, you know, the cultures of homophobia and the cultures of heteronormativity in these evangelical or fundamentalist circles. And I am, yeah, thinking about the mechanisms by which they they kept us, quote unquote, in line. And, you know, of course, at Liberty, there's that ring by spring culture where everyone's trying oh, to yeah. get married. Everyone's trying to find that his or her partner. Um, and, you know, even in, in the unlikely disciple, which is one of the it's that investigative study of Liberty by Kevin Roos. Um, yeah. He talks about this like marriage panic. And, you know, he was he's like, I was he's like, I'm an atheist and I still had marriage panic at Liberty. Like I felt like I was behind because I wasn't married yet or engaged or whatever. And that kind of stuff, um, you know, when you're gay and you're being constantly told you need to be following this path, you need to be, again, you know, finding a woman when in fact you're not attracted to women, but you're trying to convince yourself you're attracted to women. And then, of course, having people, particularly uh, Dane Emmerich, the, the conversion therapist at Liberty, who just retired this year, thankfully. Um, We've been a number of his fans lately. Oh, he, they've reached out to you? Yeah, you know the the number of conversion therapy flunkies I've met since we started this show. <laughs> it's, it's <astounding. laughs> no, it's uh, Matt when he was when he was on here. He was talking about Dane Emmerich. He had a, a particular disdain for that guy. Yeah, yeah. He's he, Dane Emmerich is a man who disdain um, Emmerich. <laughs> he's just oh my goodness the the thoughts that I have. I actually yeah he he in this um in this uh, Liberty when he when he retired. Liberty published this announcement, essentially like say, like singing his praises for what he's done. However, not once in the announcement did they talk about conversion therapy, even though, of course, he's been doing this for decades. And Dane Emmerich, in the article, he's quoted saying, uh, they ask him, you know, how many, like, how many kids, to, when he says, what, no, pardon me, he says, when people ask him how many kids he has, he says, I have three daughters, because he has three daughters. And he says, and I have thousands of sons. Ew, ew. And like just yeah, what yeah. chilling words, right? That Dane Emmerich willingly has worked with thousands of young men. Of course, he didn't work just with queer students. He also worked with uh, those who were quote unquote addicted to porn. Um, but to think that he <laughs> has every had college influence- kid that acts that looked at it a couple of times. Say it again. And that was just every college kid who looked at it a couple of times was like, I think I have a porn addiction. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my life. It's in shambles. I looked at porn. <laughs> like, Dude, what? what kind of skeletons were in that guy's closet? Like, can you imagine his browser history? <laughs> I'll bet you it's weird. <laughs> well, that was the thing. He used to always, because what he would do and part of what conversion therapy was for us was that we would have to recount to him every week. Uh, are, or I believe was it every week or every other week? I don't, I don't actually know which one it was, but again, we met all four years. Um, and, and whatever the, the, the time or the, the, the schedule that we had, he would always, every single time ask us about, uh, slip ups. And so what he referred to as slip ups were anything from like looking at another guy, uh, lustfully to porn, to, you know, hooking up with someone, whatever. Um, and so he would ask us to sit there and and list out what we had done that week. And it was always just like such an uncomfortable question and, and answer, like interrogation process oh, where God. you had to sit with this man, this, this grandpa like figure. I mean, he was like a grandpa, like he was, he was elderly and um, he also was very uh, seemingly kind, right? Like he had this very like warm energy that was of course wildly misleading and deceiving, but 
Um, he made you feel as if like, this is a safe space. We can talk about this, but then he would constantly ask like very, very particular details about your sex life. <laughs> and you're sitting there like, uh, is this normal? Um, although at the same time, I shouldn't say it was this normal. That's something I, I, I sometimes look back and I, and I put my perspective now on that because at the time I actually didn't think it was all that weird that I was going to conversion therapy because I thought, well, this is just the right thing to do. And this is what I should be doing. Of course, I wasn't advertising and told my friends that I was at conversion therapy, but, um, but at the same time, when I did leave and I told friends at McMaster that I went to conversion therapy, they were like, what the hell are you talking about? And <laughs> again, I was like, oh, that maybe this really isn't something that <laughs> the rest of the world or not the rest of the world, but a lot of the world doesn't, you know, that a lot of the world does, doesn't do this. Um, but I thought that, you know, it wasn't all that uh, ex- exceptional in the literal sense of the word. Was there any respect for like boundaries? I mean, was there ever, you know, were you able to say like, I don't, I don't really feel comfortable talking about this. Or was that considered like you were, you were uh, leaving room for sin or something like that? Casey, I honestly, very sincerely, the thought of boundaries never once came into my mind. I never once thought of boundaries because in evangelicalism and in, you know, in these conservative faith traditions, personal boundaries are not as, you know, defined. And I can think about, you know, now where I have people, for instance, I had this guy email me recently after he read one of my articles, essentially saying like, God still loves you. You're gay and it's not okay, but God still loves you. Oof. And within moments of like <laughs> within the first few sentences, he's more homework to next time. <laughs> I know. I was like, did you read the article? Um, but he, but he, he says in, in the email, he's like, starts talking to me about how he's been able to overcome his lust, his lust addiction or whatever he called it. And I thought to myself, like, what an inappropriate thing to like tell an absolute stranger. Like I wasn't telling my story to like, in fact, I actually am very careful about not offering a lot of details about like the actual like sexual part. Cause I don't, uh, that's not anyone's business. And I don't want to talk about that, um, you know, publicly. However, for him, mm-hmm. you know, immediately it was like, let me tell you about my porn addiction. And I was like, this reminds me of a number of conversations when I was moving from Florida, this evangelical guy came up to me when I was having a garage sale and within minutes, he was telling me about his porn addiction. He was telling me about who he voted for Trump and how black people were the problem uh, with their with their. He's like, what did he say? He said the reason black people are um, are unemployed and not working. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, are you saying like all black? What black people do you know? And he was like, it's because of it's because of them. Like, they're the problem. And I was like, you just wow. came up to be an absolute stranger and felt very comfortable to tell me your racist thoughts, your pro-Trump, <laughs> you know, sentiments. And then, you know, the fact that you have a porn addiction and your wife's right over there talking to my roommate, like what? Like it, that's the thing about personal boundaries in evangelical circles. They're just not as defined. People find it, you know, it's something that they can, they feel comfortable sharing really personal details or asking you to share really personal details. So when I was with Dane, I wasn't thinking, it wasn't in my, in my, my, my paradigm to, to question whether or not he should be asking me these questions. I just thought, oh, this is what I should be doing because this is what's going to set me straight. And that's all that yeah. mattered to me. Because it's like you, your assumption was he has my best interest at heart and he's trying to help. And it, he, if he's asking, it's because it's relevant and matters to my recovery. Is pro- yeah. I, and there's such an emphasis on, on, on what's the word? On trusting leaders, right? Like you trust your pastor, you trust your, you know, the head of your school, you trust whatever, whoever the, your spiritual leadership is, you, you simply just trust. There's not really much critical reflection involved dude that is like teeing so many people up for abuse because you put a predatory person in that role and they have an open i mean it's it's 
open for them. Yeah. And like the like you talk about that guy sharing those details, you know, I think I mean, I feel like outside of these circles even. Like, I feel like everybody I know we have has met people who it seems like almost a form of exhibitionism for them to like overshare some of those details, you know, <laughs> to make you slightly uncomfortable. Mark and uh, <laughs> I don't know. I almost wonder, like, like some of the people that that consistently like chime in in those situations, you know, as you get older, you start to look back on those and be like, he really liked telling me that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you, you, it was, it was, he was always, I remember like watching him respond to how I would say certain things and it just always felt so uncomfortable. Like he'd be like, did you do this with the guy? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did, did, did you do this with like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it was like, again it was just you you had to question like what what's your investment here sir like what why are you so curious about all these particulars oh. you're like i always thought all this time he was just adjusting the pleats in his khakis and on second <laughs> why thought <is> he... <laughs> why is your leg so itchy all the time dude you got poison ivy yeah. <laughs> there's a cream for oh, that really? but not that kind of cream <laughs> yeah yeah right right, right. oh sorry 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 <laughs> if you hear squishing that's just me applying my cream okay <laughs> just applying his cream <laughs> oh my god man. that is wild man it's it, it's you know there's so much of uh you know some of the stories that uh we've heard like like talking to matt and stuff that it's it's weird to think back on that time at liberty and to realize like this stuff was going on like there was people dealing with this and going through this right next to me and i i had no clue you know i had no clue that people were struggling this hard you know in in these scenarios that i felt completely comfortable in at least for me i thought a prominent belief was like i want to know if this came up in that conversion therapy you're in was like i i always thought it was fairly acceptable and common understanding like that if you were gay you could just be like look i am gay there's probably nothing i can do about that so my calling in life is mm -hmm. to just just be abstinent and to remain single uh, because it's not it's not being gay that's the problem. That's just my cross to bear. Uh, it's it's gay sex or gay relationships that's the actual problem. So as long as I can just you know avoid that and confess my lust from time to time, like then then I'll be okay. Was that not part of was that part of that? What was what was that type of thinking? That it was just okay to be gay, but not as long as you didn't do anything, as long as you didn't practice, yeah. you can't act on it. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. It's like, here's this dessert placed in front of you. It smells really good. It really tastes really good, but you can't touch it or eat it. <laughs> You're like, that seems like a little bit of torture, right? Like that was, that was the way that evangelicals or pardon me, you know, conversion, uh, the conversion therapist, Dane, um, it, that was exactly how it was framed where it's, and I, you know, and I think that's a Liberty or that's a more broad, it's not just conversion therapists, it's evangelicalism more, more broadly that it's not having the desire that's wrong. It's acting on the desire. So for all intents and purposes, you, you can't, how do you say you can have the desires and that's not the issue. According to these folks, it's instead if ever you act on it. Yeah. But I, I think that gave like straight people like us, the ability, like the, it gave us the feeling that 
we could understand and and empathize because at a Christian university and 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 at a with an evangelical upbringing, like it was such a no no to have any sort of sexual relationship before you were married that if I, as a young man was remaining abstinent until marriage, like I felt like, even though I knew like marriage was probably down the road and that I would end up having sex, like there was that feeling that I'm 19, 20 years old. I'm living on a college dorm. I'm, I'm around lots of people and you know, uh, of course I want to have sex, but I'm just, I'm choosing not to because, because of my faith. And the Lord says, keep your fingers out of folks. (laughs) And it felt like I could, I honestly feel like I thought I could like understand. I get, it sounds really shitty to say, and I don't think I really thought about it that much of the time, but I, I felt like I could understand what people were going through who were gay because it's like, well, yeah, I know what it's like to want to have sex and, and choose to not have it. And I remember thinking like my friends who were having sex were like, oh, that's really sad and disappointing because I, I managed to stay abstinent for so long. And it just built this thing up in my head that like, oh, it, you can do this. Like, because I did it, therefore, like, I don't know. I guess anyone could uh, with make And of course, making the inappropriate assumption that you could do that until you died. Like that was okay. Right. <laughs> well, that's two, two things, right? Like I think what you're saying speaks to the wider culture uh, of evangelicalism, which is that there are incredibly messed up sexual politics, right? That this idea of abstinence is, 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 you know, not only like the uh, like good for you, but it's the only way you can live. Like if you're not living you know, a pure life, then you're not following God the way that you should. And that of course questions a lot of things that might even question your salvation. Um, but on top of that, like the way that queer folks are put into these situations where, you know, for the, for the young straight kid, he, you know, if we're talking about a guy, like he's able to go, you know, by by the time he's probably like 21 or 22, like most evangelicals, they get married very young. And it's like, (laughs) he is able to go and live a life where he's able to have sex in, you know, in the confines of marriage. And that's, that's okay. But for the gay person, sorry, you're never going to have, you know, a life of happiness because you're never going to be allowed to act on that, um, that part of who you are. And, and, you know, for whatever reason, or pardon me, ultimately, that is a big part of who we are, right? Like our sexual lives are a big part of who we are, just as much as like other parts of our lives are big parts of who we are. That's a big part of who we are. And so it's this almost like, like death sentence. And I don't mean to say like, in the sense of like actual life being taken, but in the sense of like livelihood being taken. Yeah, it is. And where the kid who's queer has to think, okay, either I have to become straight, which isn't really working out for me so well, or uh, I have to just live a life of celibacy. And of course, evangelicals will oftentimes frame it as like, Oh, it's a blessing. Like Paul was a, Paul was celibate. I'm like, I don't think Paul was very happy. If you read what he wrote, like the guy seems pretty <laughs> frustrated, you know, like that thorn in his side was really, <laughs> really causing him some trouble. Um, and I just think to myself, like, you know, the, the, what the, the offering of, of, of celibacy as if it's this, you know, again, gift, it's like, if it's such a good gift, why don't you go live it? You know, if it's such a calling, like, you know, like, why don't, why don't, you know, why don't you like step up? Because it's not a life that anyone wants to live. Um, and I think people who do live it are oftentimes forced into it. Um, I do think there are very few people, I mean, I guess nuns and whatnot, um, (laughs) we've seen the negative ramifications of forcing people into a life of celibacy, in exactly. exchange exactly. for a, All that to a say. spiritual connect a, a closer yeah. spiritual connection to god i don't even know i just 
we've seen that the dark turns that that takes. I, th- I think it's totally unrealistic. I mean, maybe there's people out there that can do it, but it just seems like you 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 have like a biological imperative to to act out on those things and to like think that you're gonna avoid that forever. I don't, I don't know. Wishful I mean, I just don't see it ever for anyone. And I think that when you repress those things, I mean, it shows in so many, so many different ways, but like when you repress those urges and, and just pretend that they, that they aren't there, they don't apply, like they manifest themselves in weird ways. Yeah. That's why, that's why yeah. Sam's always looking at pictures of like uh, giant chicks <laughs> stomping on him. Yeah. Giantess porn. Is that what you call it, Sam? I- yeah, you got me. I don't even know what to say. You've made me uncomfortable. <laughs> Boy, I've outed you. I'm sorry. Um, speaking though of uh, of straight people and like uh, their relationship to gay people at you know in evangelical spaces, I had a I had a buddy um, reach out to me after one of the articles was published, um, and I have his quote. Like he sent it to me, and it was actually going to be part of another article that never got published. But um, do you mind if I read it to you? Because I think that it it gives some uh, insight into the weirdness that is conversion therapy. Yeah, absolutely. So he says, Luke, I read your article and cried the whole way through. I'm so incredibly disgusted and sad by the things you experienced. I think what's remarkable is how similar your story is to others I've heard. It makes it evident that these stories are not simply anecdotes. There, there was a targeted strategy in place. He's talking in the context of liberty. I first learned about it my sophomore year. I took a summer intensive and was staying at a friend's apartment with him. I was called to meet with Pastor Dane because as a sophomore, I apparently had to clear it with Liberty before living off campus. Long story short, my friend was gay and I knew that, but apparently Liberty also knew it. So after I violated their policy, they proceeded to question me under the assumption that I was also gay. It was such a strange glimpse into a world that I didn't know existed and yet folks like you knew so intimately and that seemed a bit like the point. They kept it secret. They kept it as secret as possible. Everything he said to me, Pastor Dane, uh, was veiled and presented as quote-unquote spiritual counseling. The strange conversation I had with Dane and another one I had with some other guy connected to him left such a a lasting impression in in my psyche. I cannot begin to comprehend what years of those meetings would do to you. And I'm so sorry. Like, I think that, you know, speaking of like a gay or a straight person having to like think through what it's like for a gay person, I think this guy was an example of that. Hmm. And, and I think that this, you know, hearing his story and then knowing that he knows other people who went through conversion therapy, who's again, stories are similar to mine and others. um, It's just such a, I think, uh, how do I say like a testament to like how, wild and weird and upside down and, and and scary and awful that that world of conversion therapy really is wow yeah you almost feel like uh like my default um like when i'm trying to put together a picture of of what these people are like you know like a dane or some of those it's an old man similar to a lot of people i've known in my life you know in those similar circles i feel like there's a a, a natural predilection to think of them as almost like, like they're naive in this way. When in fact, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, they've got detective work going into this thing. Like they know what they're looking for. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying this very well, but like you almost think of them as like, like a sexually naive, like they not are, they're not really picking up on or understanding what's happening around them. But obviously they were, I mean, they were, on the lookout for, for signs and signals and then targeting people based on that. Yeah. And it is targeted. Right. And I think that this idea that, and and I, and I don't think it's just conversion therapy. I think it's something that goes beyond that. And, you know, when, when straight men in the church 
recognize a, a guy for being a little perhaps more effeminate or be, having you know different interests like oh he wants to dance you know <laughs> he wants to go to art school yeah. you know that's different there's that like uncomfortability that the, or that what's that word that like there's that that vibe that they put off where it's like that's not okay I don't like how you're not following the gendered script of like what it means to be a masculine man or whatever because according to what was that book the into the what was that book about uh masculinity and oh my god is it the one where people oh yeah yeah yeah. i know what you're talking about people on my dorm read a good bit yeah uh, wild at heart yes that was one where the kids lived in the woods right there's there's into the wild then there's wild at heart okay okay and i don't know and i think the wild, wild at heart is the one i think was a christian <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was there. That guy in the bus. Like, anyway, I think. But Wild at Heart is the is the book. It was a big deal when we were at Liberty. And I think that that book's like this representative text of what it means to be a man in the church. And if you're not following that, my whole point is that if you're not following that, you get these weird vibes. You feel like you you feel it. I remember so often being with certain men in the church, and you know, again, like I think once you spend like five minutes with me, you know that I'm not straight. But this, <laughs> these guys, when I would be with them, it was like they were almost trying to make me into what it means to be a man according to their definition, where they'd be like, Luke, come play football with us. Luke, do this. And it's like, what What about my physical appearance makes you think that I'm going to want to play football, good sir? Like, have you <laughs> talked to me for like five minutes or seen me throw a ball? Like, no. Um, and And I think that it was this weird pressure that I think, again, it's not just conversion. Th- I think about conversion therapy as, as the condensed form of the homophobia within the church. It's not that it's, um, you know, I, I just think it's like a, a more concentrated version of that. But if you, you know, zoom out and you see the church, you know, in general, I think this is stuff that happens throughout and like this, like sniffing out of people and trying to find out. Um, I think that's, again, part of evangelicalism, whether or not you're gay, it's looking for the sin and trying to root that out and, and, you know, make everyone conform to the certain standard that they have decided is the right standard or the, you know, the golden standard. And I think that it's, it's part of a larger system that just needs to be dismantled and ultimately, you know, exposed. So I I have a couple of questions to follow up then. Like, obviously you had your experience with it. Uh, You've had, seemingly a lot of interaction and conversations with people who have had experiences with it from separate institutions is was this conversion therapy a were these developed by individual institutions and everyone was doing it differently and had their own approach to it or was this like a unit like a a calculated approach where the tools were handed down from i don't know maybe one or two more prominent evangelical groups, whatever. I don't know. Groups probably not the right word, but like I think of things like um, when you think of prominent evangelical names and influences, I think of like your focus on the families um, mm-hmm. or I actually, yeah, it's, like, it's like that book that, uh, that, that might, you know, I got for when I hit puberty that preparing for adolescence, it was like, yeah, <laughs> every I, young man's battle. No, I never was... had to read that one. <laughs> it was called Preparing for Adolescence, and it was like this focus on the family, James Dobson walkthrough of, you know, all the changes that were happening in my body and where I was going to grow hair and how I might wake up, you know, sticky in the middle of the night <laughs> and and how to feel they bad have, about they those They have things. a way of making things sound so gross, don't they? 
Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, like they just speak so clinically about it in a way that you're just like, come on, dude, get out of get out of your own way. That yeah, that's um, that's an interesting question. Was that do you think that that was some sort of developed strategy? So there's uh, here's the thing. So it, when it comes to the history of conversion therapy, I can't speak really past anything from the 90s before. Like where it came from, I don't necessarily have. Uh, I don't. Pardon me. I don't have uh, the the knowledge of the history. Though there is a book uh, being written, or it's under under uh, what's the word? It's under consideration by the University of Chicago Press. Uh, it's called. I know Chris, his name's Chris Babbitts. He's this historian out in Utah who's doing a history of conversion therapy. And so that like that is a book to come and it is a book to check out when it does come out. Um, and if, what is it called? To Cure a Sinful Nation is what it's called. So it's right now it's just under review and it's going to be hopefully published within the next year. Hmm. And so that that text will offer a more, a more fleshed out version because to be honest, I don't know the, the origins of it. However, what I can say is one time I was at Northwestern at uh, University for, pardon me, sorry? No, sorry. Forget me. <laughs> I tried making um, a joke. Oh, you know, I, I wish I heard because I just said at band camp. It was such a, like a I'm in high school joke. It was not worth it. We're gonna cut. I was it. there for it. No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so is that so is that Northwestern University for this summer program? And uh, there was uh, it was it was a Holocaust uh, studies specific uh, summer program where they invited uh, mostly professors, but a few PhD candidates were also involved. And so I was there. And this woman named Dagmar Herzog, Dr. Dagmar Herzog, she's a historian at CUNY, the the Graduate Center in New York. Uh, And she's one of, uh, she does a lot of work on on the Holocaust, Nazis, and uh, gender and sexuality. And so she was describing Nazi understandings of sexuality. And I'm sitting there the entire Mm. time thinking to myself, this sounds uncannily familiar. Like all of what she's saying sounds precisely like what I was taught in conversion therapy. So I went up to her afterwards and I said, wow. Hey Dagmar. Um, I said, I went to Liberty university and she gave me a hug and said, I'm sorry. Oh <laughs> that my was God. <laughs> and she said, I'm sorry. And she, I said, yeah, I went through conversion therapy and you know, she was like, Oh my gosh, get over here. And so she's just, you know, what a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, heart, but also like an absolute whip. Like this woman, Oh my gosh, just an absolute brain. Um, and she and I started talking and I said, you know, I explained to her, you know, this sounds very com- comparable to, it sounds comparable to my experience conversion therapy. And I said, has anyone ever done any research on the connection between Nazi understandings of sexuality and conversion therapy? And she said, no, but you're going to write that article. Um, unfortunately, I don't have German as, <laughs> as a language, so I can't really be the one to write the article. So I'm gonna, I tried to commission my friend who's a German historian uh, to help me. But putting all that aside, um, my, my my point is not that there is this direct line from conversion therapy or from from Nazi understandings of sexuality to conversion therapy in the states. My point instead is that the very fact that there are such comparable parallels, the fact that there is such a similarity between these two understandings of sexuality and then deployments of those understandings of sexuality, so as to make queer folks different, to, so as to make queer folks straight. Um, if ever I have anything that's comparable to Nazi ideology. That's when you should tap me on the shoulder and tell me to like rethink my position. Um, and 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 so what I will say is again, not that there is a direct line, but of course there are a lot of intellectual inheritances uh, from around that time, from who knows where. And you know, studies of sexuality and gender were um, were only beginning to. Well, there's Freud and you know the beginning, the turn of the century and whatnot, and then after that, uh, Magnus Hirschfeld and or Hirschfeld is that his name? Uh, he was the one who was uh, doing research in, in Germany, and then the Nazis, of course, uh, targeted him and, and burned up all of his library. 
Uh, but then you have, you know, Kinsey and all these folks, these early pioneers in gender and sexuality studies. Um, and so mostly sexuality studies, but nonetheless. Um, all that to say is that by the 90s, <laughs> so again, there's this big black <laughs> hole between that and then later. <laughs> so I'm not really that helpful in locating the origins. However, what I can say is that in the 90s, this is what kind of the heyday of, of, of conversion therapy and, and organizations like Exodus International um, and oh, Love God, and Action. I forgot about them. Yeah, thankfully they are now um, not a thing anymore. Though I, I I've heard rumors that there are similar like para organizations that are somewhat related to them. That they're like, we're not trying to make anyone straight. We're just trying to support people. And it's like, what does that support entail? That's, that cryptic bullshit language is so aggravating. It's always that veiled language, and that's even something that consists or persists today. Right? We have you know so many organizations that are now. Uh, forced into subterfuge, like they cannot openly advertise conversion therapy, or they know that if they do, they're going to be attacked. Like they're going to be like people are going to come after them. Um, and so what they do is they have there's these rhetorical gymnastics that they perform so as to not give away that they are um, conversion therapists, but have these dog whistles that will signal, hey, if you're looking to you know uh, to live a life of like of of godly of godliness, like come speak to us. And you know it's like most of the time it's like we're str- if you're struggling, every time you hear like struggling. It's like immediately like that perks my ears up. Um, to think, <laughs> yeah, you know what? <laughs> what is behind that phrase? With. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that um, in the '90s, you have this like big explosion of conversion therapy. You know, uh, organizations they have these conferences, which I just think is the funniest thing ever. It's like, hey, let's have like all these queer folks in the church not know each other, but then let's put them in a hotel room or like one big hotel for like a weekend and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What, what do you I, think is going to happen? It's gay Christian speed dating, right? Like that's exactly what it is. We'll put fish bowls in the hallway that people can put their keys in so they don't get lost. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so what you see then is like that, you know, if what was the movie called? Um, there's a documentary about the organization Love in Action. Uh, uh, Love Wins. or I, I forget. I can find out the exact <laughs> Love name. Wins was but, Rob Bell's hell doesn't exist oh shoot you're right you're right you're right <laughs> Rob Bell. oh boy um he's a he's considered a heretic in the evangelical church too um, oh for so sure. i guess we're in good company but all that to say is uh that by the time so like 90s and then the 2000s um this is something that's still going that was that was still going on um but i think you know in the in the last few years it's something that's really gone underground and i think in, in, in part because of these these the changes in law, right, that we're seeing across the U.S., that there are now, I believe, 20 states, I believe Virginia was the 20th state, uh, to protect LGBTQ youth from conversion therapy. Um, only whereas, 20? You know, there are, pardon me? It's only 20 so far? Only 20, yeah. Man. And the protections are also, like, pretty limited in a lot of ways, right? It's not just that conversion, it's not conversion therapy is illegal, it's uh, co- uh, coercing youth to go through conversion therapy. So that leaves open the room for people as adults to go. And I think to myself, you know, there was the Jonah case. When was that? X number of years ago, uh, there was this case. It was actually a Jewish conversion therapy organization uh, that they were. um, Oh, that's uh, interesting. They, they, they went down because of consumer fraud laws. It was that they had promised something and then that, that promise never manifested. Um, And so that's actually a really smart tactic, I think. Yeah. I think that a lot of, (laughs) you know, organizations are pushing for that, but some organizations also know that, it's a certain, you have to start at a certain place. And so at least be protecting youth. So conversion therapy today is not what it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. It's unfortunately, and fortunately, I don't know how you want to frame it, but it's, it's that it's gone underground in a lot of ways where 
it's they can no longer or a lot of them will no longer advertise as conversion therapy they'll instead advertise as again like support for people struggling with same-sex attraction and even that phrase is in some ways outdated like a lot of them will use different uh again phrases or dog whistles to say hey uh this is conversion therapy without saying hey this is conversion therapy so the face of conversion therapy has certainly changed and the approach has changed uh in some ways too but I think that because of the work of a lot of activists um, who um, who survived conversion therapy uh, are now speaking out and it's it's making a difference. And, and it's a difference that I hope continues. Did uh, did promise keepers ever play a role in any of that stuff? Because I, I don't even know if they're around anymore, but I know that that was like synonymous with deliverance from sexual temptation for for men. I mean, were they ever involved in conversion therapy, or was that an aspect of that? I wonder. Truly, I don't know, and I and I I, I I'm I'm always yeah. If ever I don't know, I'm like oh, I don't know. I uh, I don't I don't want to say make a claim that I can't back up. I don't know, but you know, even you were talking about um, Dobson, uh, focus on the family. Um, you know, he has a number of texts. Like I think he has one oh, yeah. book that I found when I was living in Florida. Um, I lived in this essentially like a retirement community, and they had a library. And I found this one book in there. It was by Dobson and it was something about like raising boys. Um, and you know that there was just some crazy stuff in there. Um, okay. But, you know, Tim and Beverly LaHaye, they write about it, um, about about being gay and like ways to like, you know, combat against that. Uh, and just, you know, this like vitriolic, uh, you know, tirades against queer people. Um, that I think that it's not just like, you know, what you're saying is that are these other organizations that are focused on like lust free living? Are they doing it in some cases? Yes. In some cases, these authors and these organizations are writing about it or, or practicing uh, or pushing for uh, anti-gay uh, living or like non-gay living. I don't know how you want to frame it or how they frame focus, it. To be honest, but. Focus on the family is perfect for that because I, I, I can't confirm this, but I have it on good authority that Mr. Whitaker was gay. <laughs> which one's mr whitaker who's he he was the old man in adventures in odyssey <laughs> <laughs> really yeah. yeah he was kind of a dumbledore type character <laughs> dumbledore type character yeah well you know even like even mel white who was jerry falwell's ghostwriter he was gay and he wrote he, he wrote for falwell a lot really really yeah yeah he's got a book called stranger at the gate it's such a phenomenal text and it's actually super helpful uh, for understanding the relationship between the event between evangelicals and the queer community. Um, he's, he's great. And the way that he writes is a lot of his personal experience. It's phenomenal. He's phenomenal. What? I didn't even know Jerry Falwell had a ghost writer. So that's news to me. Yeah. And fascinating. You think Jerry wrote the, what was it? Where were his books? Like, I haven't uh, read a single Jerry Falwell <laughs> book. Come on. <laughs> Who do you think? I the am? only book you haven't read. I've read a lot of, <laughs> You know what's funny is I dodged so many of these evangelical books and I don't I didn't read books in high school. It wasn't just because I was opposed to these evangelical ones. I bought into that harder than anything else. I just was opposed to reading in high school. So I just <laughs> didn't have to, I just didn't. I, I mean, my parents like left out. Uh, I kissed dating goodbye as like, uh, you should read this. And they left it around. And I was like, OK, you figured you'd absorb it all through osmosis just yeah. from youth group. Oh, yeah. I didn't pick up any of them. Like I said, that one book that I already mentioned earlier, the Don't Check Your Brain at the Door, was legitimately probably the only book that I can remember reading regarding like evangelical group think type messages. Sam, it it sounds to me like you left your brain at the door. I did. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't. 
And then after a while, I just decided, you know what, this is too much work. So I went back and then just put it down. And now I'm just lost. I don't know where I am. Here we are. Yeah. You know, speaking of Jer Bear, his uh, arch nemesis died this week. Who? Uh, Larry Flynn. Oh, really? Yeah. He, uh, I saw the headline a couple days ago. 78, I think. Larry Flynn. Yeah, he was the the guy from Hustler magazine that Jerry oh, had the big legal fight against. That's right. I forgot about that. He said something about him, Jerry, banging his mom in an outhouse or something. <laughs> <laughs> he sued him for defamation. Remember that? That's right. And and Jerry lost, correct? I I think so. It's the whole thing's just so funny because <laughs> it was like wasn't like the wasn't the the verdict like. Of course, he wasn't being serious. Like, obviously, yeah. this wasn't defamation. Like, that was just a joke. Yeah, yeah. He th- he lost that lawsuit. Yeah, but that's it's so funny that he even su- like who would have known? Okay, the readers of Hustler knew. Of course, it got around, but it was kind of pre-internet. Like, the only reason it turned into such a big fucking deal was because he sued him over it. Like, just that one would have just swept under the rug, like everything else, you know? Dude, the only reason that he knew about the article is because Jerry Jr. had a subscription. (laughs) (laughs) Jerry, when he got cornered about it, he's like, I just, I just do it for the articles, man. (laughs) (laughs) It's just there for the articles. He, he had a subscription, but it went to, an anonymous person who would just Xerox the articles without the images. (laughs) (laughs) Dad, you wouldn't believe what I read today. (laughs) What, Jerry Jr.? Oh my God. That's hilarious. Is it true Maisel and you met in the the outhouse? (laughs) Mom? Mom? (laughs) She was involved? No, she was just watching. What? (laughs) I had no idea that was family tradition, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Jerry, yeah, Jerry carried on the tradition when uh, with him and uh, G- Giancarlo. <laughs> Giancarlo, you have, that yeah, the feels... pool boy. You said isn't oh, his name yeah. Giancarlo? What's his name? Wait, oh Jerry yeah, Jr. I think I think that no, 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 yeah, yeah, Jerry Junior's uh, boy toy. I thought you were saying yeah, Jerry Fowell Senior also had a pool boy. I was like, ooh, the plot thickens. <laughs> Watch it was it was Carlo's dad. They've just been had like a family relationship <laughs> like all these years. Oh my god! Well, uh, all right, Luke. I have, I do have a one more question that I kind of interested in where you are now, what you're doing. So, like, as will everybody who ends up talking to us about any of this bullshit, like. We really can't separate ourselves from it, regardless of where we ended up. We cannot separate ourselves from the upbringing that we had the belief systems that were instilled in us for a good solid decade plus you know you obviously went off to pursue different types of work different degrees throughout all that you've been writing consistently about what it's like to be gay in a christian atmosphere what it's like to leave that what it's like what a lot about gay conversion therapy and those experiences where has all of this led to or leading you where are you like you know you're obviously pursuing your phd um but you're still having these conversations and it's still a big part of your life and i'm interested to see what what what's next where you're going and and 
and how your history has influenced that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's funny. Sometimes I get like comments on, cause I put uh, everything I, I, everything Liberty related, I post on my Facebook um, just cause it's a sweet archive to, you know, you can always just go back to it and find what, you know, mm-hmm. when this happened and, you know, I'll know generally when, you know, a certain event happens so I can go back and look at the, find the articles that I posted about Liberty. Cause I, I do, I, I write about Liberty a significant amount and I talk about Liberty a significant amount. Um, and I have these people who will comment and say things like, oh my gosh, like get past it, move forward. You know, what are you doing? Always like harping on Liberty, you know, and it's mostly people who are trying to defend Liberty. Um, so their motivations are of course not necessarily pure. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I think it's something that I do need to, if I am to write and talk about Liberty and post about Liberty so much, I probably do need some sort of like justification for why I do it. And I, and I think that in large part why I do it, uh, you know, initially, initially why I first started writing about it was because I wanted to separate myself from Liberty. Um, I wanted to make sure that people knew when they read my CV that I'm not, you know, a Liberty alum <laughs> that yeah. is a typical Liberty alum. <laughs> Those feelings and resonate I, with me for obviously not the same traumatic reasons they do for you, but still. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny how many of us don't put Liberty on our resume or when we do, it's the number one question we receive in interviews, um, which is something, you know, <laughs> it can either be, you know, a real big uh, uh, target on your back uh, to have a Liberty degree, or it can be a conversation starter. Um, yeah. And so far it's been, a conversation started and I should say that literally, and I mean literally every single interview I've ever been in, they have asked me about Liberty and wow. it's most of the time, how in the world did you start at Liberty and end up here? Um, <laughs> and you know, I, of course I have an answer for that as well, but um, for when people ask me like, you know, why do you keep talking about Liberty? I think it's important to talk about Liberty. Um, you know, the idea that Liberty is again, this microcosm for uh, uh, American evangelicalism writ large, that so much of what happens there is reflective of American evangelicalism and also what comes out of liberty is also what shapes evangelicalism in a number of ways too. Not to say yeah. it's the only cultural shaper of evangelicalism, but it's one of them and it's a significant institution. And so for me, I want my, I want to do my best uh, to, to, to talk about it so as to ensure that other people don't have the same experience. And I critique liberty for a number of things, for their academics, or for me, what I would consider a lack thereof, um, for liberty's conversion therapy program, for the way that liberty treats black students, and, you know, the way that liberty treats women. These are, you know, significant issues that need to be addressed. These are things that, you know, if I were to have the knowledge of what goes on there and say nothing, I think that in some ways I'm complicit. And so I do my best to expose institutions that are that that damage people and that hurt people um and particularly obviously liberty i have you know a few other folks you know or a few other uh you know individuals or organizations that i'm critical of like hillsong united uh you know uh sean fucht and all those folks uh the covid spreader um i just think to myself that (laughs) if i'm to remain silent he is he's a super he's a super spreader (laughs) guy's out of control it is in in a very literal sense we're trying to get him on the podcast (laughs) <laughs> yeah we'll see you next week sean um no, I, everyone I, hashtag I just it. Think to... <laughs> say it again. sorry i'm gonna stop cutting you off now finish your <laughs> no it's fine um i just for me i find uh i find it to be when i write about liberty when i talk about liberty uh i find and conversion therapy uh in a in a greater context i do it because not just so i can i can you know what do I do? I mean, I do it to make a difference. I do it because I don't want people to experience what I experienced because what I experienced is, was pretty death dealing. 
Um, it caused a lot of trouble in my life. It caused a lot of harm. Um, it really messed with me psychologically. Uh, it messed with mm. me socially. It messed with me spiritually. It messed with me a number of ways. And I, I just think to myself, I, I can't, I can't be quiet. I, I know what happened. I need to bear witness to that. And so, when I, I write about it, I do my best to expose it for what it, it's done, and also to give voice to people's experiences um, uh, when, when they maybe don't have representation. In the sense that, you know, when uh, I published my article about being gay at Liberty, I had a number of queer students at Liberty reach out, and they were like, "Hey, we just," they were like, "We feel seen," and I was like, "Good." Because I, you know, I, I know what it's like to be there. I don't know your experience in particular, but I do know in general that that sense of constantly having to perform, having to pretend I am, you know, more masculine than I am, having to constantly pretend I'm attracted to women and convince other people I'm attracted to women, including the women I was trying to date when I was at Liberty trying to convince <laughs> them. You know, it wasn't all that, uh, you know, successful. But again, I. That's that. And so I, they were like, I, you, we know, we know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're like, you, you're a good friend. And I was like, ah, yes, you're right. Um, <laughs> you're not wrong. Um, no, and, I, and, I, and so I think for me, I do my best to write about them uh, again, to, to ameliorate the, you know, the lives of those who are affected by either Liberty conversion therapy or something comparable. Um, but for me, uh, I'm finishing my PhD either this year or next year to be determined. Um, it just depends on a few things. Um, but when I finish, uh, I do hope to go on and teach. I'm teaching right now. I teach at University of Toronto. Um, but I want to teach, I, I teach uh, communications and writing, but I want to go back to teaching literature. I want to go back to teaching, you know, humanities courses. Uh, and I do that also because I do think that there is a, a need for that in a lot of ways. And I think that so much of education nowadays is pushing against the humanities, not pushing against, should I say, but just actually cutting humanities programs, right? You know, all these religious <laughs> studies programs being cut, all these philosophy departments. Well, actually, that's just Liberty who cut the philosophy department. But, you know, <laughs> I, I, I have um, I, 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 education, I think is important. And I think it's something that changes people. And it changed me, right? Like I, I, I would not be the person I am if had it not been for McMaster, had it not been for uh, Vanderbilt, had it not been for Florida Atlantic University. Um, and of course, I wouldn't be the same person if it weren't for, for Liberty. And I, I, what I would say, though, about Liberty is that the changes that were um, made or like what was instilled in me there um, was was not positive. And I think that for me, learning that education can change my life, you know, I then therefore believe that I can change other people's lives or help other people, you know, journey alongside them in the classroom, whatever, um, so as to, again, allow them to see the world differently, allow them to see the world otherwise, because so often we're told that this is the way the world is and we don't critically reflect on that. And I think when we do critically reflect on the world and see, you know, how messed up it is, and then we see that, you know, oh, wow, things can change. Things can be different because it was different for this person. It was different in this context, this historical context, you know, whatever. Um, that's the sort of work that I want to do. I want to be the change that I had in my life. And I want to yeah. do that for others. That's awesome. I mean, I'm excited to see what you do, what else you write, where you go. I think you've done a lot. I mean, what you've, I've loved what you've written so far and the things that I've read from you. And I'm excited to see, you know where uh, your journey takes you. Yeah. And and to just reinforce that whole idea too, it's, I think the, the uh, visibility that you guys have brought to this issue to the general public, I mean, you know, Sam is still involved in a church and he follows the community a lot and stuff, you know, he keeps like up to date on what's going on in that world. And I'm kind of removed from it, 
And it wasn't that long ago that I didn't even know, I didn't know anything about gay conversion therapy and and the negative aspects of it. I mean, I, I just had no idea that it even really existed, that there was this whole infrastructure behind the scenes that was, that these poor kids are being channeled through. So I think like the, you know, the stuff that you guys have done, you and other journalists have done to, to just like talk about this and bring awareness about it to the general public is, I mean, it's huge. It's just only going to increase the amount of pressure that's put on some of these institutions. Thank you. I appreciate that. Actually, there will be an article coming out, uh, hopefully next week, um, about it. So stay tuned. Ooh, excellent. Um, Casey, I think you might not known about it because they, um, you probably thought they were just full of success stories because they always pick these like random people who mar- like these gay dudes who married women that have like two, three kids. And they're like, I love it. It's awesome. This is going well. Yeah. I, I really women are my favorite. <laughs> I, I love straight sex guys. This is fun. <laughs> Uh, women are real cool (laughs) before we had uh before we close out i um you know hearing your story knowing that you know you've experienced the ramifications of many uh of the the great evangelical leaders of our time um i'm thinking that you will uh have a really good idea of what we're gonna play a game uh it's called name that homophobe and think that you you have to decide right now if you want the the hard version or the easy version. Um, that's that sounds more sexual than it's intended to. But maybe <laughs> yeah, I'm the, the hard folk. version or the soft version. There was that little pregnant pause, yeah. wasn't there? <laughs> uh, so I can either tell. I have three quotes, um, and then I can either tell you who the three people who. Uh, who these quotes are from are, and you can match them or I can just read them and you can see if you have any idea of who said it. I like the, I like the latter option. All right. That's fun. We like a challenge. He's just going to guess Dane Emmerich every time. (laughs) Dane Emmerich, Dane Emmerich, Dane Emmerich. They're all people you'll, you'll be very familiar with. uh, And honestly, you might've heard these quotes before, so you might be able to figure them out. This will be fun. All right. So quote number one, if we do not act now, homosexuals will own America. The homosexual steamroller will literally crush all decent men, women, and children who get in its way. Okay, so I ha- can I can I can I reason out loud without you saying yes or yes. no? Yep. Okay, so I have this sounds this sounds to me like um, Dobson, but I'm also wondering if it's if it is. This sounds very similar to a LaHaye quote, uh, Tim LaHaye uh, or Beverly LaHaye, probably, but probably Tim, um, because I, I recently have been reading uh, uh, this one text uh, that's talking a lot about the moral majority. And there was a quote in there that sounds exactly like this uh, Tim LaHaye and Beverly LaHaye quote. So, but I'm going to say that's maybe too specific. I, I'm going to say Dobson. Do I get to play? Yeah, Casey, you get to play yeah. too. Why not? Mike Pence, mm-hmm. final answer. <laughs> So you're on the right track with the moral majority there, Luke. Uh, it's Jerry Falwell. It's Jerry. Yeah. Good old Jer Bear. Jer Bear. Yeah. All right. Question two. This one's fun because it yeah. contains a lot of, um, he makes some connections that I don't know. No normal person would. And uh, it's <laughs> right. re- 
Many of those, <laughs> God, many, <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> many of those people involved in Adolf Hitler were Satanists. Many were homosexuals. The two things seemed to go together. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, don't you love a good moment where gays are compared to Nazis? It's like <laughs> it's like that. What was that wedding? The the wedding cake controversy about a, a Christian baker having to bake a gay couple a wedding cake, and they said no. And you know, then there was uh, what was his name, <laughs> a libertarian candidate for president way back when. Oh, Casey, okay, so you uh, love that says, guy, right? Rand Paul. Ron Paul. No, it was. Oh gosh, I, I wrote a paper on this actually. Gary um, Johnson. <laughs> you know, it was Gary Johnson. It was his running, like he was running against him. Uh, and what he says, uh, oh, goodness, now, I'm, now I want to look it up, but I'm going to start clicking on my computer and you're going to be able to hear it. So it's not going to be good. Um, but he says, uh, he goes, uh, they, they ask him like, you know, should this, this, this uh, baker have to bake the cake? Um, to, he asks this to Gary Johnson. Gary Johnson's like, of course I should, he should have to bake the cake. Like it's in a free market. Like this is, this is, you know, the foundation of a free market. And then he says, yeah, but what if, uh, what if a Nazi, uh, couple asks a Jewish baker to bake a wedding cake? And then Gary Johnson stupidly says like, well, of course I think the Jewish baker should get, bake the Nazi, the wedding cake. But I'm, I'm like, wait a second, let's do a few things. Let's first of all, what's a Nazi <laughs> couple? What's, you know, what are they doing <laughs> going to a Jewish baker? And then they like, both have on top of that, because on their forehead. <laughs> right. Right. And then it's like, and like on top of that, like, hold, let's think about this. You're comparing the Christian baker to the Jewish victim of the Holocaust or Jewish victims of the Holocaust. And then on the other side, you're saying that the gay couple equals Nazis. Like what in the world is this analogy? Anyway, um, Dude, the persecution complex is real. Yeah. <laughs> the gays are trying to steal Christmas. Yeah, they are. They are. They're trying to make it gay. Uh, make Christmas gay. Again. Make Christmas gay. Yeah. Um, who said this? The okay, the not Nazis. Who would be so bold? <laughs> right. I mean, they're all pretty bold. Someone well spoken, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And really well thought out too. Do you want a hint? Um Yeah, please. I'm really bad at hints, so this might ruin it, but uh he had a long running t- a long running television show. Oh, Mm-hmm. Is this the Gaither Gospel Hour? <laughs> <laughs> this Gloria Gaither. Um, Gloria. I know oh. this one. Uh, long running. Is this Pat Robertson? It's Pat Robertson. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 700 Club. Yeah. <laughs> he still uh, has a sh- TV show. He's yeah, he still says crazy dead. stuff. Yeah, yeah he still has stuff. it. Apparently, the way he built the whole contract around that show was like, borderline genius when it came to the legal contract that like you can't kill it he's doing that till he's dead dude before the election he prophesied that he had a vision that trump was gonna win and he was preparing us because in like two years an asteroid was gonna strike the earth and wipe out humanity i I found a good few quotes talking about potential asteroids hitting the earth because of the gays too yeah this guy's got an asteroid according to jerry I thought you were yeah. going to pull the nine eleven quote for, for Jerry. Uh, but that's I what knew I you would of. get that one. I didn't want to. That's why I was waiting for Jerry to answer. Although, again, like it, it could be any of them, really. That's that's the so, scary part. All right, let's do the last one. And this one is uh, this one was really funny to me. Uh, any man, any man who masturbates without his wife in the room is bordering on homosexual activity, particularly if he's watching himself in a mirror and being turned on by his own male body. <laughs> What? Who is doing that? <laughs> oh, <God>. oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. um, 
who would I mean again we know this this could be Jerry Jr. right <laughs> like you know in light of recent events that he at least was you know his wife was in the room um <laughs> I heard Jerry Jr. won't even hold his own penis when he pees <laughs> <laughs> but I'll admit that's just hearsay <laughs> yeah yeah I th- that sounds actually like queer say if you ask me uh, <laughs> oh oh <laughs> Bullet. Or I guess the opposite. I don't know. I just I like a good rhyme. Um, let's. I. I. Can we have a hint? He um, was a disgraced pastor. Oh, that was a narrow Which down. <laughs> um, a disgraced. <gasps> no, I mean Mark Driscoll. Is he considered disgraced, or by some, or by not? I'd consider him disgraced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I feel like he had a falling out, or like the world had a falling out with him. Um, I'm gonna say I don't know. Jim Baker. Jim Baker. Oh, is it Jim Baker? It's not Jim Baker, and I'm actually giving you points for it because it was Mark Driscoll, and you were on. You were there. <gasps> you were there. Come on! What did he say? Can you repeat the quote <laughs> one more time? Yeah, I'm dead over it. He was okay. If you look up quotes from Mark Driscoll and anything he said about sex, it's really always disturbing. But um, he said, "Any man who, well, masturbates is in the little brackets because it was does that." But anyway, any man who masturbates without his wife in the room is bordering on homosexuality, homosexual activity, particularly if he's watching himself in a mirror and being turned on by his own male body. You know what? That makes so much sense, particularly the first part of the quote. Yeah. Like this idea that like doing anything by oneself, you know, automatically means because it's a scare tactic, right? And all these guys are like, well, I don't want to be gay. I don't I don't want to I don't want to masturbate by myself because then I'll be gay. Like Mark Driscoll yeah. said it, you know, like it's that kind of <laughs> thinking and it, that makes a lot of sense. The Find gayest thing you can do is look at your own dick. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I want to know what he said instead of ma- the word masturbate. Was he no, just like he was referring? <laughs> no, no, no. He was referring to masturbation in a previous like, like in a previous sentence. So when he, in this in like the follow up sentence, any man who does that without his wife in the room, it was something simple, like referring does, uh, back to masturbation. <laughs> feeds the seagulls, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I had a little bonus one, but I'm just gonna throw it out there because it made me laugh so hard when I read it. It's uh, it's from Jerry Falwell. Uh, you yeah. might remember this. He just said, um, "I'm not gonna give any context for it. It was just Tinky Winky is gay." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was, Tinky Winky was gay. He wasn't wrong, but. He, but what? I actually don't, I have no idea if Tinky Winky was gay. I was just joking. <laughs> Tinky Winky was the Teletubby, right? Yeah, the purple yeah. Teletubby with the upside okay. down triangle, the purse. Well, only What's one significant. of them. Was gay. Even What's though they significant were all is that he made that prediction before Tinky Winky came out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean Jerry knew. That <laughs> was the plot twist. Uh, man, Luke, thanks so much for hanging out with us, talking about your story, and playing this ridiculous game. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. Oh, anytime. Uh, plug some All stuff, right, I'll, I'll see you next week. Do people find you on Twitter, uh, Instagram? Yeah, on on Instagram, I am at Luke Slam Dunk Wilson. On Twitter, oh my gosh, I still to this day don't know my handle. Yeah. Can we edit this and you just tell them my handle? We'll just put it in, man. We'll We'll put it in your socials. You don't, oh, beautiful. We'll put it in the show notes. Follow him. He says Isn't great that, things. He posts great things. 
Isn't that terribly embarrassing? I don't even know my own Twitter handle. It's like Wilson LF or something. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. And Googling Luke Wilson doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Look, yeah. You have to look up Lucas Wilson or Luke Slam Dunk. It's one or the other. All right, man. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time.